Welcome to the McMillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Han Saucy, the Bird White House and Professor of Comparative Literature at Yale University. Professor Saucy has a range of scholarly interests, including Chinese poetry, literature, aesthetics, and culture. His published articles explore a wide range of topics, such as Chinese musicology, the history of the idea of oral literature, Haitian literature, healthcare for the poor, and contemporary art. In his first book, The Problem of a Chinese Aesthetic, he applied a new model of comparative literature. And in his book, Great Walls of Discourse and Other Adventures in Cultural China, he examines the way that assumptions and consensus within a discipline affect collective thinking about the object of study. Today, we'll talk with Professor Saucy about comparative literature. Welcome, Professor Saucy. Thank you. Let's begin with the basics. What is comparative literature? How did the field emerge um, in contrast to English, say, or rhetoric? Sure. Well, comparative literature, the term emerges around 1820 mm -hmm. in the wake of Napoleon's conquest of Europe, which, as you know, was rapidly rolled back. Uh, but uh, what what spurred it, I think, is that people begin to talk about cultural and national difference. And previously, I think the models for culture had all come from ancient Greece and Rome, and the idea was that neoclassical art was good enough for everybody, and people were trying to catch up with the people who had the best neoclassical art, which were, of course, the French. Mm -hmm. But as kind of as a cultural resistance to the Napoleonic conquests, people in the conquered areas like Germany, Italy, and so forth began to discover that they, they were not just waiting around to be discovered as dormant Frenchmen, but that they they did things differently, their linguistic differences, their historical differences were important to them. And so literature becomes plural after after Napoleon, in, in Europe anyway. Hence the, the idea of needing to compare and contrast and emphasize the differences. So I think comparative literature always grows out of a realization of differences. Uh, in the U.S., it got its big start after the Second World War, I think, because in this country we began to participate on an international stage, mm -hmm. and it's uh, more or less contemporary with the creation of area studies, which is why I think it's appropriate for me to be talking about comparative literature in a Macmillan Center uh, format, because area studies is, is what we live on here mm -hmm. in, in Macmillan, and Complit would you know, in, in this uh, version of things, comparative literature would be sort of the, the artistic and literary side of this awareness that there are a lot of cultures out there, mm -hmm. that they don't all reduce down to one model, and that what's interesting about them is how they, how they differ. So how do you make it work then? Well, this is the trick, uh, because you can, you can just say this, you know, this culture is like that culture, this author is like that author, this work is like that work, but it's not it's not really interesting unless you also take the theoretical step back and say, where do I get my judgment of similarity mm -hmm. or of difference here? What are the historical connections? How does my position as an observer affect the things that I'm going to notice mm -hmm. and observe? So, and that, for me, is where the excitement is. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, of course, it's great to, to be able to simply compare, but also you want to stand aside from yourself and watch yourself compare. That must be hard to do and somewhat subjective, I imagine. Do you have any difficulty along those lines? I've, I've, uh, my secret is to make 
my work out of my difficulty. Mm -hmm. right? Some, so a friend of mine likes to say, you need to find a job that mirrors your personal pathology. <laughs> this, this happens to be the kind of difficulty that interests me the most, mm -hmm. right? you know, reflexiveness, how, how we become something in addition to ourselves by thinking about ourselves. And so I hope it's, it's a, a feature and not a bug mm -hmm. in, the, in the comparative mindset. I am curious um, in terms of your personal history and how you became um, attracted or um, how did you find comparative literature? Mm. What drew you to it? It was, it was accidents. Uh, I was a freshman in college trying to write an essay about participles and prepositions. There was something that bothered me about both of those things in language. I was always drawn to linguistics mm -hmm. and I, I was a Greek major as an undergraduate. So I was just trying to think about how language relates to thought and some people sent me to some books and I read them and I wasn't so sure. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled across this book by the anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss called The Savage Mind. Okay. And it, it just completely opened doors for me and, and made me think about cultures as, as being very tightly organized bodies of knowledge that make sense on their own basis and may not translate into other cultures. Mm -hmm. Now later on I thought that was a very incomplete way of thinking about it, but you know, it's as if I had just discovered a whole range of other planets to explore. You've written a book called um, Comparative Literature in an Era of Globalization. Mm -hmm. um, what um, was the catalyst to mm -hmm. writing the book? Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about it. Sure, well, the catalyst was, was very empirical. The American Comparative Literature Association has uh, a mandate in their bylaws that every 10 years somebody has to write a report on the state of comparative literature. Wow. And they asked me to do it. I, I hesitated because I didn't want to write the report mm -hmm. because I didn't, I didn't think I was the only person who had something to say. So I, I divvied up the responsibility and had other people make contributions from their very different points of view. And then we had yet other people reflect on the contributions of those first contributors. But since I got to be the editor, I hogged some space mm -hmm. and I wrote the first and longest piece where, where I just talked about how I thought the, the field had been developing in the last, really in the last half century, but particularly in the last 10 years. And one move that I noticed was from an idea of comparative literature as multiculturalism, where you know, each culture, as I was saying just a moment ago, right, this mm -hmm. model of each culture being uh, sort of like a planet that spins on its own axis, to attention to things that cover a lot of different cultures mm -hmm. uh, that you might call globalization, right? So multiculturalism would tend to make us isolate cultures and think of cultures as having their own constituencies and their own uh, ways of being. And a force like globalization, think of it as economic globalization or the, the uh, mobility of labor, for example, today that we see you know, in the economic world. These are, these are like tsunamis. They're like big waves that cover everything in their path. And there are such things. If you're only interested in the multicultural angle of difference, you might be oblivious to these big dynamics. Mm -hmm. And yet, how does the big universal dynamic intersect with the way that we comparative literature people focus on difference and specificity? That was what was interesting to me. And how does it? Well, um, we, we exhibit this relation, I think, in some of the things that we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, Fifteen years ago, people were not paying attention to things like world literature, which has since grown to be a, a big obsession of many people in the field. And what, it, what is world literature? 
it's the, the traffic among nations that causes some authors to become prominent on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And of course, this has been going on for a long time. You know, almost 200 years ago, Goethe named world literature. He said that the age of world literature is coming. And he could be a good example of it because by the time he died, everybody on the planet who read works of literature knew about Goethe. Right? Other writers might not have had such a promising beginning, but they grow to have worldwide significance. You know, people like uh, Baudelaire, let's say, who was censored in his home country, but mm -hmm. maybe because of that became uh, the, the dominant poet of the modern world. Or people like Fernando Pessoa, uh, a Portuguese poet mm -hmm. who, just to make things more complicated, wrote on s under several pseudonyms. He too enters circulation, people translate him, he's published in different countries, and people respond to him. Mm -hmm. So uh, the people who, who work on world literature are interested in these mechanisms of circulation, right? How does, how does a book get an audience beyond its immediate language or its immediate nation and culture? Okay. And so they, they chart this kind of dynamic. You work in the field of comparative literature mm -hmm. and um, you specialize in Chinese literature. Mm -hmm. How do the two intersect for you? Uh, well, with difficulty, but really? <laughs> as you know, I love difficulty. The, the hard part is getting these two things to translate into each other. Mm -hmm. uh, in, when I think about the way literary cultures develop, I think China would maybe be the type case of, of what you could call a normal development. That is, literature is from very early on sponsored by a strong state apparatus that uses literature and literary culture as a means of recruiting people. Mm -hmm. you know, everybody knows about the famous Mandarin exams where people, thousands of people all over the country would take these standardized exams every three years to compete for a place in the bureaucracy. And the way that you showed that you had talent was by literary writing. There were mm -hmm. poetry entries, for example, along with the essay entries on the exams. So the, the ability to wield literary language and to do really intelligent things with, with the whole past of Chinese literature became a major qualifier for being an important person in that culture. Hmm. I would not say that that's the way literature works in the United States of America in the year 2010. Uh, many of the most brilliant rhetoricians I know are unemployed. <laughs> the people who write the best novels often have a very hard time going from month to month. So we, we're, we're in what from the point of view of traditional China might be an abnormal state. The other thing uh, that strikes me in Chinese literature is the continuity of it all. You know, you can, if you're literate in Chinese, you can pick up a document from the age of Homer and more or less understand what it's about. You might need some, some help with some of the hard words, but there's a lot of continuity. You know, continuity of language, continuity of culture and of meanings. Uh, well, try reading a sample of English from just 500 years ago, and you know how difficult it can yes. be. Europe and European traditions generally are all about turnover, it seems. Mm -hmm. Every few hundred years, the dominant language in, in Europe will switch. Institutions change. You have church and university and state and civil society and the market and all these things, each pushing their own modes of communication, their own languages, their own canons, as we say in the mm -hmm. literary field. And in China, things are much more neatly harmonized around a central core of things that everybody expects to know. So if China's normal and Europe's abnormal, uh, and abnormal doesn't mean bad in my vocabulary. Okay. <laughs> it, abnormal, abnormal correlates with interesting okay. <laughs> in my vocabulary. <laughs> but uh, if, if they have such, such 
deeply different ways of organizing the cultural world, then the comparison becomes interesting because it can't just be point for point. You, you can't just be comparing the poet Li Shangyin with the poet Rambo, but it involves the whole structure of culture that they're each part of. And how do you do that? Uh, well, one trick is to pay a lot of attention to context mm -hmm. and then to have to compensate for the fact that since the context is so different, you're, you're not going to be dealing with a lot of similarity. So you tend to have to say things like, the way that this poet reacts to that tradition is similar to the way the other poet reacts to the different tradition mm -hmm. over on this side. So it, it becomes a, a little bit more um, recherche, to mm. use good English. <laughs> uh, it becomes a little bit more twisty and devious, but, but I think the, the comparisons that result are not just ingenious. You know, mm -hmm. a, a lot of us are good at being ingenious, but often they're very meaningful because I think you can extract from these situations some basic categories like uh, resistance, uh, rethinking, rewriting, uh, the the job of digging up lost ancestors, you know, mm -hmm. people who thought like you from maybe 600 years ago and were ignored at the time and suddenly become vital for your culture at another moment. You know, these kinds of dynamic, I think, are, are pretty widespread if we know how to look for them. Mm -hmm. And do you think language plays a, a large role in comparative literature? Hmm. I mean, do you need to be a linguist, for instance? You, you need to be uh, unafraid of languages, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, you, ha you, have to, you have to have a realistic standard for your ability to deal with languages because if you're dealing with, say, six or seven languages, which is not an abnormal number for comparative literature, you're not going to speak all of them like a native. Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you can get up to native level with one language other than your own. There are going to be a lot of languages where you're using plenty of duct tape and bailing wire to, mm -hmm. to get your ideas across. Nonetheless, if you're, if you're willing to engage with languages and not be afraid of your tendency to fall over your feet, you can, you can deal with, with them. And I think uh, here's one, region, one area where comparative literature I think differs a little bit from the world literature framework mm -hmm. right? because world literature is interested in translation but translation is always the vehicle to get the content moved over to a new place where okay. it can have new readers. Comparative literature throughout its whole history has been attentive to specific languages. You know, in, in my advanced classes I want people to read texts in the original and to be able to pay attention to that level of detail where it's word choice, it's semantics, it's even things like alliteration and rhyme sure. that have a powerful influence on how you're going to receive a text. So I think languages are one thing that we absolutely can't throw out the window and mm -hmm. still be doing comparative literature. Seems like it would make it very difficult though um, if you have to know several different languages to be a to be good at it. Yeah. 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 When, when I sent my first book to the press, it was just packed with all these quotations in foreign languages because you know, I, was a, I was a young pipsqueak. I was mm -hmm. coming up in the world and I thought, I have to show these people that I know my stuff. Mm -hmm. And my editor sent back a note and said, with every foreign language quotation, you lose half of the readership you had up until then. So, so I did the math and by page eight, I was down <laughs> to a readership of about <laughs> .4. So, so with, uh, with less than one reader, I thought, okay, I've got to change this. So I made the book more user-friendly. I translated all the quotations and, and went the step that you have to go to, mm -hmm. to have the reader. But nonetheless, I think the reason for doing that is to tell people, is to show people this is worth doing. It is so much more fun if you can read this stuff on your own. Sure. So 
accept my offer of temptation and come into the palace of comparative mm -hmm. literature. What do you think the future holds for comparative literature? Where do you think it's going? Well, uh, one thing that happens is that languages that were less studied become more studied, right? Look at the number of people who are studying Chinese and Arabic, mm -hmm. for example, sure. in, in this country. Uh, I worry that people are studying those languages only up to communicative ability. I, I hope that people go on and study the classical version of the languages, read widely, become culturally literate, so that it's not just a matter of communicating or you know, understanding or so the worst case scenario is that people learn just enough language in order to uh, read a document for a very defined purpose. Mm -hmm. you know, I, my mental picture is of people sitting with earphones on their heads in a basement in Langley, Virginia, having learned Arabic just in order to do intelligence intercepts. Sure. I think that would be a waste of, of human talent. So if people go on and, and study the literature and the culture and become very deeply fluent, they can make real contributions to comparative literature. And I also think there's an element of that elusive thing that we call international understanding that would be achieved in that way. Right? I admire people who can walk into different cultures and make themselves at home and get across whatever message they have without seeming to do it from, a, from an alien standpoint where they're imposing their ideas, but they're sort of eliciting the latent ideas in that culture that happen to harmonize with the ideas mm -hmm. that they had on their own. I the do admire do that, that as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure. For more information about Professor Saucy and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.